Our reading is from Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 12. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what the Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by the Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foremen went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I will not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? This is the word of the Lord. Evening, my name's Phil. I serve on the staff here. You should have an outline um, for the talk, and if you want to keep the Bible open, we'll be working our way through it. Let's pray as we look at God's Word together tonight. Father God, as we think about heavy things, we pray that you would give us soft hearts. And our Father, we pray that you would enable us to see truths that uh, we often don't want to know. But we pray that you would give us the courage to face up to reality. And most of all, we pray that you would give us a longing and a yearning to know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in him we might find uh, life and hope and joy in the face of all troubles. Amen. Now it seems to me that there is a, there's a sort of subconscious belief that most of us buy into. That, look, if I obey God, things ought to go better. If I live life the right way, you know, nothing's going to be perfect in this world, but if I live life the right way, then it should at least go a bit better than if I disobey God and do bad stuff all the time. If I honor God, the path ought to be smooth. It's the way we we sort of think. You know, there are sort of crass people who say, you know, God will make you a multimillionaire. Most of us don't believe that sort of nonsense, but we do sort of all buy into this idea that Life should generally go better if I obey God. And if life sucks right now, if it hurts and I can't make sense of it, but I obey God, then it ought to, it ought to straighten itself out soon, surely. And so we struggle to reconcile pain and disappointment with a good God who's got plans to bless us. It's very hard to hold those things together because in our minds we have this sort of black and white view that suffering is bad and comfort is good. It's the way our culture works. Suffering is bad, comfort is good. Avoid suffering at all costs. And so consequently our faith gets weak, those of us who follow Jesus, when life gets hard. And we question not just whether God loves us and God is for us, but we question whether we love God and whether we want to obey and follow him. And in tonight's passage in Exodus 5 to 6, God graciously reveals something of his plans and his purposes for why he allows suffering. It's not everything the Bible will say, but it is something. His point in teaching us this is so that in Spurgeon's word, even when we can't see his hand, we know his heart. Okay, everything's going pretty well, though, as we drop into this passage. If you look um, back just a little bit, um, Exodus 4.29, the end of uh, last week. Exodus 4.29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So the miraculous signs work an absolute treat and the people are all singing and dancing in the streets and it's like a revival's broken out. Everybody's praising God. God's going to get us out of Egypt. No longer slavery. There's no more Monday mornings in Egypt. We just get to go free. This is phenomenal. And so Moses tells his wife, don't even bother booking into a hotel. I'm popping in to see Pharaoh. I'm going to tell him, we're off. God says, and he's the real God. Pharaoh will say, gosh, Fair cop, Moses. And before you know it, we're going to be part of the biggest traffic jam in history, heading east out of Egypt. Don't bother booking a room. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. That is a change. Oh, I can't speak. I don't know what to say. No one will believe me. No, Moses has seen God's miraculous power. So Moses, he walks in and he speaks truth to power with the confidence of a man who knows almighty God is at his back and giving him his words. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Okay. It's not quite how it went when I rehearsed it in the mirror beforehand. Um, Let's, you know, try it again, this time with the threat of plagues. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us, that's all of us, Pharaoh, you too, with the sword or with plagues. To say it doesn't exactly then pan out the way Moses has planned would be a mild understatement. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Hang on, he said what God told him to say, and it didn't work. What's going on? Well, hopefully our memories are slightly longer than Moses. Have a look back at 3.19. What's going on is exactly what God said would go on. Halfway through verse 18, uh, say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders. And he said the same thing again in 421 to 23. All that is happening is all that God has said. But secondly, another thing is happening, and that is that the curtain is being peeled back, and we are seeing the scene behind the scenes, if you like. Pharaoh's mask is finally slipping. And we start to see that what's going on is not primarily economic, as if Pharaoh just can't bear the thought of what it would do to the GDP of Egypt if he lost this valuable resource of a slave nation. It's not primarily political. I'd lose face terribly if if I just let these people go. It's not primarily racial, as if he thinks, well, the Israelites, they're, you know... They're not worth anything other than slaves. They're just a lower breed of people. 
All those things may be going on in his mind. But at its heart, in Pharaoh, there is a hatred for God. Verse 2, when he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. He's not saying, well, we studied all the sort of gods in RE and I don't remember this one coming up. He means, this God means nothing to me. In Egypt, I am almighty. I am God in this land and this God is nothing. So I do not recognize him. Way back in Genesis 3.15, God spoke of a fault line that would run through the whole universe. A battle between good and evil. On one side would be the serpent who brought sin and temptation into the world. And on the other side would be the promise that God gave through Eve that a child would be born eventually who would crush Satan's head and who would bring an end to the curse of death and evil in our world. And throughout the Bible, the fulfillment of that promise is threatened by all those who serve the serpent. And usually it's wicked humans who do Satan's dirty work, attacking, enslaving, tempting, and seeking to overthrow the children of the promise. And this is what Pharaoh is doing now. He's asserting himself as God and owner of the people. So it's interesting. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he calls them Israel twice. After that, they are the people of the land. They belong to Egypt. They're mine. He is calling himself God. You can see it again in verses 9 and 18. The word he uses for work there, get the people back to work for me, is exactly the same word that is used in 4.23 when God says, tell them to leave, to worship me, to work for, serve me. Pharaoh is saying, they are to worship, to work for, to serve me, not your God. He's challenging the Lord as a rival God. It's actually Moses and Aaron are not the central characters in this story. The Israelites are not the central characters in this story. This is a, a titanic heavyweight bout between the two superpowers. The great unrivaled King Pharaoh, the ruler of the known world, and the unknown God of a ragtag slave nation. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. This is a cosmic power struggle between two who claim to be the one true God. And the immediate result of this battle is that things get much, much worse for the Israelites on the ground. Look at verse 10. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen, appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers, were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? What they are being asked to do is impossible. That is the point. It is meant to crush them. Pharaoh is as cunning as he is wicked. He wants to divide the people from their leaders, to turn them against their God. But what a God Pharaoh is. When they cried out to the Lord, he heard them in 2.23 and 3.9. This time they cry out to Pharaoh, verses 15 to 16. It's the same word actually, the appeal word for crying out. Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. 
When they cried to the Lord, he had compassion. When they cry out to Pharaoh, he crushes them. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Well, what now? What now is we see faith in the furnace? The ultimate test of their trust in God. It's one thing you see to obey God when you obey him and everything works. Everything goes wonderfully. It's quite another thing to obey God when you obey him and honor him and everything goes wrong. And they're faced with the choice here between easy slavery and a hard fight of freedom. Verses 19 to 23. Verse 19. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Oh dear. They blame Moses. And Moses, just for good measure, blames God. Moses returned to the Lord, verse 22, and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is that why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you've not rescued your people at all. As if God hadn't told him this was going to happen. What's really striking, though, is, do you see who doesn't get blamed? The Israelite foreman and Moses and Aaron. There's somebody, quite obvious, that they don't have a bad word to say about. Pharaoh. They speak as if Moses is the one causing all their suffering, as if it's God's fault. They were born slaves. They've lived all their lives as slaves. And yet they're saying, now we're obnoxious to Pharaoh, as if the fact that he's made you his slaves and is working you to death doesn't mean you're obnoxious in his sight. They say, now you've put a sword in his hand to kill us, as if being worked to death, building cities in Egypt, was not a slave sword in Pharaoh's hand anyway, as if life was all peaches and cream until Moses arrived. But they would rather have a gentler slavery than a hard fight that ends in freedom, which seems absolutely nuts from the outside. I mean, who would choose slavery that will end in death rather than a fight for freedom? Well, you and me. See, the Bible tells us Exodus, the rescue of the Israelites from physical slavery, is a picture A great visual illustration. It's a real historical account. But it also pictures a far greater slavery and a far greater rescue. See, God's rescue of his people from all nations, from our slavery to our own sinful desires that mean that we turn in on ourselves, we serve ourselves and turn our backs on our God. And we'll one day die eternally as a result. And what happens when we turn to follow God? And find him challenging some of the cherished sins in our hearts that we have lived in for years. Maybe the self-righteousness that means we love nurturing a sense of grievance against others. And we just can't let go of past wrongs. Or the lust that uses others as nothing more than fuel to satisfy the fire. Or the greed that is always hungry for more and just consumes and consumes and consumes rather than gives with generosity. You see, the Bible reveals the truth about those cherished sins, just as it reveals the truth about Pharaoh. 
They are not benign. They're not harmless. They're not neutral. They're not just a choice. All sin, no matter how sweet it tastes in the mouth, is bitter poison in the stomach. The wages of sin is death. It corrupts. It twists. Sin is destructive, and you need to learn to see through the packaging and the lies. It shrivels your heart. It ruins your relationships. It pollutes. It damages everything. And it always ends in death. It is like all addictive drugs. It delivers pleasure, undeniable pleasure. But it is always leading to death. And when God offers us freedom from our sins in Jesus Christ, we rejoice. It's a wonderful promise. We're so sick of being slaves. And sitting here, oh, yes, I I long to be free of all my sin. It's just tomorrow when the hot moments of temptation come or the long slog of resisting those temptations yet again, of putting to death things I enjoy, things other people do. And we're not so sure we want to fight after all. And like the Israelites, you and I daily make choices that basically say, as long as my sin is not going to kill me this week, I'd rather be comfortable in my sin than just have a bruising, tiring fight all the time. If that's all right with you, God. I know lasting pleasure comes with Jesus, but frankly, there's more than enough pleasure in this sin to keep me going. So if it's all the same, we forget so quickly what sin is and what's on offer through God that he is lasting pleasure. He is our soul's true treasure. And yet we just can't be bothered with the fight. And so rather than praying that he would strengthen us to fight hard, we'd actually much rather he just made us comfortable in our sin. But now in chapter six, God reveals why it is he's allowed things to get so much worse before they get better. Why does God allow this to happen? It does expose the hearts of the Israelites. So suffering, suffering always exposes our hearts. But why in particular does God do this? Here's the big point. There are things about God that Moses and the Israelites and Egypt and the surrounding nations would never know if verse 2 ran, oh, gosh, you're so right. How awful of us to be holding you as slaves. I, I can't can't imagine what came over us. Please go free and thank you for your years of hard service. Go for it. Worship your God. See, if that happened, look at verses 1 to 11 of of chapter 6 and just ask yourself, what things about God that he reveals here would they not know if Pharaoh had just let them go in 5-2? Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the Israelites go out of his country. I think there are six P's that summarize what God says in these verses that they'll learn over the coming days of battle between God and Pharaoh. Six P's just to make it easier to remember. Six P's of God's character. Verse 1, his power. Verse 4, his promise keeping. Verse 5, his pity. Verse 6, his punishment. Verse 7, his presence. And verse 11, his patient perseverance. Now some of those things they would know anyway. Uh, God's pity they would know that he'd heard them with compassion and shown pity to them by the the simple fact that they get out of Egypt and God's presence with them. However Pharaoh lets them go, whether immediately or after the plagues, they'll know God's presence. But here's the thing, unless Pharaoh had resisted, unless the plagues and the splitting of the Red Seas happened, they would have absolutely no idea how mighty and awesome is the power of God. Unless Pharaoh resisted, they would have no idea the lengths that God would go to to keep his promise. Unless Pharaoh resisted, they would never know that he is a God of justice who will punish Pharaoh for what he has done. Unless Moses kept complaining, and unless the Israelites kept on grumbling, they would never know how patient God is in persevering with his people. Their knowledge of God would have been shallow and thin if they'd walked out of Egypt in 5.2. They will leave Egypt in Exodus 12 with a very different knowledge of God. You can almost say with a different God in their minds to the one they would have had had they walked out in 5-2. What does all this have to say to us? Well, the first thing I think to say is this is the way it tends to go with God. It gets worse before it gets better. We see it again and again and again. And again in the Bible. And finally, at the River Jordan outside of Jerusalem, a couple of thousand years ago, a guy turns up and he gets baptized in the river by a man called John the Baptist. And as he's coming out of the river, heaven is split open and a voice appears from heaven and God Almighty says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God announces the conqueror has arrived. The promised saviour is here. Satan's days are numbered and the one who will crush his head has arrived in history on earth. At last, the one who will answer not just the promises of the Old Testament, but all the longings of the human race, he is here. Surely it's only a matter of days before Satan's going to be crushed beneath his feet and the world will be transformed. Of course, it doesn't quite run like that, does it? Before his victorious resurrection, Jesus must endure rejection by the crowds, dwindling to nothing. Betrayal by a friend who will sell him for just a small bag of silver and torture and agonizing death on a cross. But here's the thing. Can you imagine how much less we would know about and love God If the day of Jesus' baptism, Satan had just rolled over and that had been it. 
What would the phrase God loves you mean if you didn't know that God's love was so rich and so deep that God would allow his own son to die on a cross bearing the full weight of wrath for our sins? How confident would you be facing death if you didn't know that the Lord Jesus Christ had already walked that way before and died death for us? Deep down, deep down, we actually know that stories are richer and deeper when they are dark before it's resolved. In fact, it's known read the Lord of the Rings if the hobbits worked out how to destroy the evil ring of power at the end of the first chapter. Some of you hate that story and you think the world would have been a much better place if he hadn't bothered writing the other three books. But it would be a pretty dull story. Oh, look, here's an evil ring of power. I wonder if you can hit it with a hammer and it smashes. It's broken. Yay. (laughs) That's not a great story. I'd like to see Peter Jackson try and make four films out of that. Um, Shawshank Redemption. Imagine if the first day in prison, uh, prison guard appears. Sorry, the judges said they realized you were innocent all along. You're free, Andy Dufresne. Yay. No one's going to watch that movie. But the thing that we learn from Exodus and the thing we learn from these chapters, it is not just that the ending is so much more glorious if there have been dark, hopeless chapters in the middle. It is not just that living in God's remade paradise world at the end of time will be so, so, so much sweeter because of the bitter things that we've had to eat here on earth. It is that also there are things about God that you and I could never, ever know unless we had to swallow bitter pills here on earth. There is a depth and a richness to your relationship with God that I'm afraid just does not come any way except through suffering. You see, the God who opens the way for relationship with you through the suffering and death of his son is a God who deepens his relationship with us through our own suffering. I think that is partly what is meant by the verse we read at the beginning of the service in Philippians. I want to know Christ, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. God reveals himself most fully to us in the suffering of his son on the cross. Suffering is where God meets us and suffering is where God deepens our relationship with him. See, there is a problem with the way many of us think about the Christian life at this point. See, we view uh, suffering like a hurricane. A friend of mine is um, he's a vicar in Bermuda. That's a pretty nice gig, you've got to say. Except for once every year or two when a hurricane sweeps through. But when a hurricane arrives, the, the procedure is basically batten down the hatches, hide in a shelter, plug in your laptop and start watching a box set and just wait 48 hours. The, the hurricane has nothing to teach you. The hurricane achieves nothing of any lasting value. You just hope to survive and hope there won't be too much damage done when you emerge from the bunker after the hurricane's disappeared. And we're like that. We're suffering. We batten down the hatches. Just get through and hope there's not too much damage when we emerge the other side of whatever trial we're going through. Suffering is something that if we don't survive it, it can turn us completely away from God. It can stop us seeking God's purposes in our life. It can embitter us against God. 
But even those of us who cling to God through suffering, so often we fail to see that maybe God has purposes for us in the suffering. It's not just that he wants to see whether we'll hang on to him and get through the other side. What if the suffering is not something to be gotten through so that you can get back to living your life for God and serving him? What if it is the thing itself? What if there are things about God that you and I just can never ever know unless we go through suffering? What if suffering like nothing else on earth refines character and deepens relationship with God? What if you can only really become humble enough and compassionate enough to be able to really serve other people if you've been broken and bruised and refined and shaped by your own suffering? If we'll only learn and believe that, then we won't turn away from God in bitterness when life crushes us or when things don't improve for week after month after year. Uh, a few years back when I was, um, I was studying, I was at home at mum and dad's for Sunday. I was a very good son, so I had a good deal going. I was kind to them. Uh, if mum was kind enough to give me Sunday lunch, I'd be kind enough to give her my laundry. So it works when you're single. And, uh, and then I'd be kind enough to stay around just long enough to do a little bit of washing up. And then there was the Sunday afternoon Premier League showing at the pub down the road. So I was rather disappointed when I turned up this Sunday to find out that they'd invited some Ethiopian theological student from the local Bible college back for lunch, and I was expected to hang around and talk to him afterwards. Parents are just horribly unreasonable. That's just who they are. Um, As it turned out, uh, an afternoon chatting to this guy, Bekele, was far, far more interesting than any Premier League match I've ever seen. Uh, He was a church planter and theologian from Ethiopia, and that is not a soft option. Uh, Evangelical Bible-believing Christians over there sometimes face really brutal persecution from the Ethiopian Orthodox, especially away from the towns and the countryside where he worked. And the last time he'd been back in Ethiopia, he'd been at um, at the wedding of a friend, a pastor friend at a church that they'd helped plant. And weddings are a big deal there. It's a beauty culture. I mean, a serious beauty culture. They prize beauty. You think brides here take a long time getting ready. It's nothing compared with Ethiopia. Guys are just thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. Girls are, really? You can spend longer? Yep, you can. Uh, Seriously. And uh, at this particular wedding, the whole community's there, because that's what happens at these village weddings. Everybody's there. Um, But this celebration of beauty got very, very ugly as uh, an Orthodox mob descended from the hills and attacked them during the wedding ceremony. Uh, The bride lost one eye was horribly badly injured, almost lost her sight in the other eye. But thankfully there was a missionary doctor there who was able to stabilize her, save her eye, and get her back to a a hospital in one of the towns. A month or two later, she's recovering in hospital, and Bekele takes her fiancé down to see her in the hospital ward. And she's shocked to see him. She said, what are you doing here? My face is ruined. You know why, why would you even come here to see me look like this? You're not going to marry me now that I look like this. You can't. I look hideous. And he said to her, you bear the scars of Christ. You are more beautiful to me than you ever were before. Her suffering was terrible. In a culture like that, to be physically disfigured. No one would ever look at her the same way again. But the truth is... She learned things about her husband's love for her 
through that hideous suffering, she could never have learnt in thousands of years of happy, easy marriage. It is not a perfect illustration. But what if there are things about God that you and I can only learn through suffering? What if there are treasured jewels of his immense love for us that somehow, in the mystery of this world, we can only really grasp through suffering? When you read uh, the stories of old Christians who lived the sort of lives that in our better moments you and I would really like to live, or when you meet old Christians who are just full of joy and life, you cannot escape the fact that they've all got lots of scars. They grew love, they grew full of love and joy and humility and grace as they clung to God in suffering and not just in good times. And as they resolved not to turn inwards in bitterness, but to turn outwards and remain open, clinging to God and serving others. So you and I will only learn God is all I need when God is all I have. I'll only know if I really love God rather than the stuff he gives me when he doesn't give me that stuff for a while. No one ever experienced the greatness, the goodness, the glory, the compassion, the love of God in a deep way through an easy life. And the joy is that although all of us will go through suffering, you can't escape that in this world. Cling to the God of the Bible and you find he is a God who brings great and rich and deep and lasting good through suffering. Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that we would, um, we would not have such a short-term view that when things go from bad to worse, even though we're serving you, we just get embittered and angry and give up. We pray that we would learn the lessons of history. And that we would see that you are a God who brings great good from suffering. And we pray especially that as we walk through bitter seasons of life, that we would know you in a deeper way than we ever could before. Father, please would you draw especially near to those of us now who are going through suffering. Would we have the experience that you are a God who is not a far-off God, but that you are the God of all compassion and comfort. Amen.